So today's uh, Bible reading is uh, from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and it can be found on page 1063 of the uh, Church Bibles. On the third day, the wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, You have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the, after the guests had had too much to drink. But you have said the best till now. Jesus, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. You've been provided with an outline that uh, might, might help you as we go through this passage this morning. Great to keep your Bibles open at John chapter 2. And let me pray that God and his kindness will speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your grace towards us in your Son. And we pray that as we reflect on uh, this, your word, uh, you'll speak not only to our brains, uh, so we'll, we'll be able to understand you better, but actually to our hearts as well, so we'll be strengthened and encouraged as we seek to work out who you are and what, we, uh, what it means to follow you in this world. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I became a follower of Jesus when I was about 20 years old. And if you'd asked me the sort of uh, thoughts I had about Christians or about God before I became a Christian, I think it would have been something like this. Uh, Christians were people who were pretty daggy, you know, about 20 years behind in fashion, generally wore socks under their sandals, uh, singlets under their shirts, and their jeans sort of tied up and cinched around their chest somewhere, you know. Normally, Christians were people who were the first to leave parties, you know, so they always had to be in bed by 9 o'clock. That was a clear rule that uh, Christians abided by. And what they did generally was swap 70 years of fun and enjoyment and excitement in this world uh, in the hope of having an eternity with God that would outweigh all this. And uh, that eternity would, would be spent with all these people, all these boring people that they went to church with on a Sunday morning, okay? And that, that was the nature of eternity. That was the sort of mi- mindset I had about Christians. If you'd asked me about God, uh, what I would have said was that God was sort of like a, um, a cosmic policeman, you know, uh, who was in the background waiting for people to goof up and make mistakes so I could sort of slap them down, you know. And that's the sort of perception I had, that Christianity was sort of a repressive, uh, negative, uh, sour-faced religion, that sort of idea. But, you know, when you turn to the Bible and when you encounter the person of Jesus, you can't possibly come to that sort of conclusion. It's just, just not 
impossible to see that when you confront Jesus. And I think that's especially the case when we come here to John chapter 2 and see Jesus at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Let me fill you in on a bit of background. It's useful, useful to have. Um, I know there have been a few people get married in this congregation in recent years. I want you to imagine that you go along to one of those weddings and then afterwards you're at the reception. Let's say it's at Adelaide Oval, okay? And uh, you go along, you're sitting down, you've just, uh, the bride and the groom have just come in with the wedding party, they're sitting at the top table, all the guests sit down and then the manager of the facility comes in steps up to the microphone and says, welcome here tonight, but I just have some disappointing news for you. Uh, the parents of the bride and the groom, uh, they have not paid the account they were meant to pay, and therefore we are not able to serve you with any food or any wine tonight. Thank you. Good night. Okay, and he steps away. Okay, now your guests sitting around the tables at this point, what are you feeling? All right. Right? abject embarrassment for the, for the parties and the family and everything like that. I mean, you just want to shrivel up and die uh, of embarrassment on their behalf. Well, if you can imagine that sort of feeling and then multiply it by about 10, you've got the situation here at Cana in Galilee. It's a first century Middle Eastern culture and they took their hospitality very, very seriously. Now, receptions in this day could last up to seven days. Right? They could not just sort of get together for a couple of hours. They would, they would keep partying all week. It was that sort of celebration. Uh, if the food wasn't up to scratch, right, it's not like our situation. You know, when you go to a meal and you don't like what you're served, right? we're well-trained, we just smile politely. You know, thank you for all the effort or something like that. You know, we just avoid the problem, you know. In this sort of context, if you didn't like what you were served at the wedding reception, you could sue the bridegroom's family, right? If the bride and the groom weren't happy with the gifts that they received, they, they could sue the guests, you know. We'd just rewrap it and re-gift it to somebody else, you know. But they had a totally... You know, this was a really, really serious sort of <laughs> hospitality culture. So here we have that sort of situation when towards the end of the reception, so we're probably a number of days into the celebration, and we have no more wine. And you can almost picture the bridegroom rushing off to check up on his litigation insurance and just work out if he's covered uh, for this sort of eventuality. Now into that situation steps Jesus, and he sorts out the problem by turning water into wine. Now there are two uh, issues that sometimes get raised for people when they hear the Bible reading that we just heard read. The first is to do with Jesus' thoughts or his relationship to alcohol. Uh, so in our, our context, we know that alcohol uh, wreaks extraordinarily problems in our society. Uh, those are in the medical profession, uh, work in hospitals. Uh, you know there's a high percentage of people who come into hospital uh, with medical conditions that have been triggered by uh, failure to treat alcohol in the right sort of way. So people have looked at this sort of passage and they've said, well, yeah, Jesus obviously wouldn't be endorsing alcohol. I mean, that, could, that couldn't be. And uh, therefore they come up with other solutions. So like when he turned the water into wine, it was non-alcoholic wine. Or maybe even that uh, the, the master of ceremonies 
that uh, he was sort of making a joke because of the embarrassment. You know, like he knew the water, you know, the water had come from water jugs. Therefore, you know, he was saying when he got presented with this one to taste it, ah, you saved the best till last, you know, Puritat 2016, you know, or something like that. Uh, but, but those sort of explanations, they defy the imagination and they actually defy the text that's in front of us. If you're familiar with the, the Bible and the storyline of the Bible, you'll know that actually the Old Testament and the New Testament as well has a very positive view when it comes to wine. Back in Psalm 104, verse 15, we're told that God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. Right? It's, it's a gift from God. We, we tend to think it's wolf blasts. No, 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 it's God who is the provider of wine. He is the creator, the giver of good things. And here we're told that Jesus provides it. Uh, and it's not just any old wine. This is Grange Hermitage, right? This, that's what the master of ceremony says. You say the top quality wine to last. Normally we do it the other way around. And that's what Jesus does. Drink in the Bible isn't the problem. It's the drinker that's the problem. Uh, that's, it's our sinfulness in not handling good gifts well that creates the issue. Now, the other issue that, that sometimes comes up or rings in people's ears or jars is the way Jesus treats his mother. Uh, Jesus' mother asks him to do something, and uh, it, it sort of almost feels a bit rude, doesn't it? Because uh, Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? The old New International Version translates it, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Uh, Now, if Sue and I were having a discussion and I said to her, Dear woman, I'd be in trouble. Uh, Do you know what I mean? And if I'd ever tried that on my mother, you know, when she was having a woman, you know, uh, my father wouldn't have been terribly pleased about that way of treating my mother. And so people have said, Jesus, you know, this doesn't seem all that appropriate. Can I say, the, it sounds uh, rude to our ears. It is formal. There is a sense of Jesus um, uh, formally addressing his mother because he's trying to create a level of distance at this point. And what you see here is Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. He's saying to his mother, you, you can't dictate the divine agenda at this point. And uh, he does it politely, but he does do it in quite a formal sense. Okay, worthwhile just addressing a couple of those things. Let's turn now to the the miracle itself. Uh, What is is going on here? And you look at it and you go, "This, this actually is a very impressive miracle. So what's it doing here? Why are we being told this? Often I think believers have taken this as evidence of God's capacity to break into this world and do the miraculous to prove or endorse the fact that he is God and actually has this sort of power and authority, this sort of proof of his his existence, if you like. That is more deistic than Christian. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Deism is the idea that God has uh, sort of wound up the world a bit like a clock, right? Set it in motion and then steps back and observes what goes on. And then uh, people say, well, and occasionally what God does is he intrudes into this world 
and does something out of the ordinary, cuts across the laws of nature, indicating that he, in fact, is God. But can I say that is deistic and it isn't Christian. It's not a Christian world view. The Christian worldview, when you, you look at the Bible, is that the whole world exists and is sustained by the power of God and the authority of God from moment to moment. Okay, nothing occurs, nothing exists, except God superintends and has authority over it. Okay? Right now, everyone in this room, their heart is beating. Okay? And I trust that that will continue at least for the duration of the sermon, right? But, uh, you know, now, but you don't even think about it, do you? You know, your heart just sort of beats. You know, it just, you don't, you're not consciously making it beat. It just is. It just happens, you know. If God were to take his hand off this world or off your life even for a moment, that's what happens. Uh, he is the author and in control of absolutely everything. That is the Christian view of this world and the authority of God. So what is going on here with this event at Cana in Galilee? Look with me at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. So we're getting to the end of this encounter and we're told what Jesus did at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. It's interesting, here in John's Gospel, miracle actually is not, not used. Sign is used. And it is the whole idea of what it points to, what it directs you towards. Later in John's Gospel, chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, we're getting the summary of Jesus' ministry and his impact, and we're told this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, we're being told that this sign points to Jesus' glory. Uh, glory is just the idea of seeing something in its, uh, its fullness or its completeness, in its uh, perfection, if you like, that sort of idea. Uh, now, we've been reminded about a lot of that over the last you know, 10 days or so with the Olympics, when you see sort of perfect physical specimens producing extraordinary results. Uh, I used to do some gymnastics. I was working, watching the uh, female gymnastics go through their routines on the television. And Biles, the, uh, the woman from the United States, uh, she won the overall gold. I don't know if you saw her floor routine, but I could not believe it. Right, now, I used to do gymnastics, yeah. Uh, a few decades ago now, but uh, you know, I just see what they can do today, and I, I was just stunned and amazed. See, to see her on that floor routine, which she concluded the all rounds in, and hardly make even a small mistake, was as close to glory as I could imagine on that that sort of uh, physical activity. Just startling. We're being told that this miracle. This sign points us to Jesus' glory. How does it do that? Notice in verse 4, uh, we're told that his time or the hour has not yet come. The hour. 
has not yet come. Now, what, what hour? It's a stock phrase that's used in John's gospel. If you went to chapter 7, verse 30, again, Jesus says there that his hour has not yet come. When you get to chapter 12, verse 23, when he's, uh, Jesus is with his disciples just before he's about to be killed, he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Just before his death on the cross, that is the hour of his ultimate glory when he hangs and dies for the sins of the whole world. That's the moment of glory because at that point you see in all its fullness the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the justice and the grace of God towards lost and sinful people in this world, towards lost and sinful people like you and me. That is the high point of his moment, his glory. Now how does this sign, how does this sign, water being turned into wine, how does that reveal the glory of God and point us to his death on the cross? It's not immediately obvious, is it? That is, water to wine, death on a cross. How is one linked with the other? Six stone washing jars. Uh, I haven't touched on that yet, but look with me at uh, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons, okay, from 80 to 115 litres, roughly, in each of these jars. So I want you to think about this for a moment. We're getting to the end of this, this celebration, the big party. Now, big receptions in this day and age in a village like Cana, maybe 50 to 70 people, right? That would have been a large gathering of people uh, for the whole week. So that's the situation, almost the end of the week, 50 to 70 people, and Jesus makes 150 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, I don't know about the parties that you go to, uh, but I would have thought 180 gallons of wine for 50 people at this point in the party is just a bit of overkill, you know? Um, don't you think? It's extraordinary extravagance, providing 900 bottles of grain hermitage shortly before everyone goes home. But that's effectively what happens here. So why so much and why such quality? What is happening? What are these jars or these barrels or these, these pots that are referred to here? Uh, the Jews in this first century context, a lot of their thinking about the way in which they uh, operated with their religion was based on their understanding of the Old Testament and the way in which that told them how they should behave. They were concerned as followers of Yahweh to hold themselves physically and spiritually clean and pure. And they saw the two actually linked with each other. What that meant was they picked up particularly on the rules in Leviticus that indicated uh, that they should be cleansing themselves physically as a sign of their ritual or, uh, or spiritual purity. And they got themselves into quite an overkill in this sort of area. 
to indicate that they were dedicated towards God, they would wash themselves before and after meals. They'd wash the utensils that they ate from very carefully. After they'd been shopping, they'd have to wash themselves. After a funeral, they'd have to wash themselves. After they'd met someone in the street, they'd have to wash themselves. And this wasn't for hygiene, although there may have been an element of that there, but it's primarily to set themselves apart as the people of God, to show their distinctive nature as his people. But if you can imagine uh, that the whole of life was built around needing to wash your souls all the time, whenever you encountered life or people, what an enormous burden that is. Uh, that you were just tied in knots over what you had to do. And the fact that they had to do it all the time, it just highlighted the, the gulf that existed between them and God, the holy God and unholy people. The washing constantly reminded them of that. And what happens here is Jesus takes these huge water pots that symbolise their bondage to religious rules and their bondage to sin and he fills them up with a huge volume of unnecessary and high-quality wine. That's what he does. Wine in the Old Testament. Remember, it's a sign of God's blessing. and It's actually a sign of the age when God brings in his salvation. God's grace towards them, the way in which God puts them right with himself. And Jesus, at this point, at this wedding feast in Galilee, when he fills up these jars with water, is saying, now I am here, let the party begin. This This is what you've been looking forward to. And this is a sign that points to the reality of God's blessing towards you. These jars, these old ceremonies, these pointed to a day when God would do something to free you from it all, when God would complete all his promises to you, where he would establish his relationship with you in a final and complete and conclusive way. That day has arrived, the moment of glory. It's an extraordinary uh, sign, really, What I want to do for just a moment or two is to reflect with you on what does it tell us? Okay, what are are the implications of this sign? Firstly, what what does it tell us about God? I don't know what sort of image you revert to when you think about God. Some of us had the the grandfather view of God, you know, sits back, white beard, uh, wisely pondering and hovering, non-interference policy. Uh, Eventually you get to meet him. You know, often people have that sort of view. Uh, Some people have a sort of a parking inspector view of God. Uh, Parking inspectors are apparently the most unpopular people on the face of the planet. Uh, Apparently, they're just totally unliked. A few years ago, uh, they changed the uniform of the parking inspectors from brown to blue, hoping that they could improve their image. Okay. Now, I I should have asked probably, is anyone a parking inspector? But, uh, uh, you know, you just... You know, yeah, you react when you see a parking inspector. You sort of, there's that visceral sort of reaction. You feel like they're just out to get you. I think some people feel like that about God. You know, just out to get them. Or, or for some of us, I think our understanding of God can be shaped by our own family backgrounds and particularly the way in which we related to our own fathers as if we didn't feel loved 
or valued by our fathers, often that can actually um, seep its way into your thinking about God and what he's like in relation with you. But friends here, notice what you see. A God who is full of generosity and grace. A God who steps into our world to solve our biggest problem and not a lack of wine at a wedding. I know our our biggest problem, our need for relationship with our Heavenly Father. A sign that points us to the cross where God himself establishes the basis for the way in which we can be forgiven and restored in relationship with God. A God who gives totally of himself to achieve that sort of outcome. That's the powerful, gracious, compassionate God that we're confronted with here in John chapter 2. But then the second thing is this. This, this I think, is a sign that transforms the way in which you think about the Christian life. There are a lot of people I know who, who wouldn't call themselves followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, who have a very negative view about Christianity. And they would essentially see that, that the Christianity is a no religion, right? A negative religion about what you can't do. Repressive. Uh, all about rules and actions that you need to take because of the fear of judgment that will come in the future. And that you keep going on with these rules in the hope that there will be something better, that heaven will transform it all. Uh, they view Christianity, and this was my view before I became a Christian, they view it as a lifelong set of negative obligations. I think it's a bit like uh, uh, the same sort of view as sort of when you get a mortgage. You know, when you're taking a mortgage on a home, you get this sort of 25 or 30 year loan, you know, 792 payments on a fortnightly basis of $894.60, and after you've been going for 25 or 30 years, the house is yours, you know? Sort of that endless sort of tunnel that eventually you get to, and then you're the owner. I reckon often people think that Christianity is like that, and you sort of pay it off over time. But it's not. It's much more like if um, you had a... a an ancient aunt that you didn't even know existed who died, and you didn't even know she died, until someone turns up on your doorstep and says, you are the sole beneficiary of her estate, and she had 10 million bucks, here's the cheque. You go, cheque for what? Who? You know, like, didn't even know about it. You know, <laughs> this woman that didn't even sort of enter my consciousness. That's what Christianity is like. Christianity is, is all about the God who steps into our world when we don't deserve it, who sends his son into the world to die on a cross when we've done the direct opposite of what entitles us to that. His son dies on the cross, the moment of God's grace and mercy and compassion and kindness, all because you don't deserve it and you get it as a free gift. That's what Christianity is all about. It's a totally different way of thinking than what most people, I think, regard it as being. Religion's all about when you do things to get on the right side of God. That's religion. Christianity 
It's all about what God has done in Christ to make us right with himself. Not what we do, what God has done. And once you understand that grace and forgiveness, you never want to go back to the water jars of religion. I mean, that's anathema, isn't it? When I became a Christian, I was doing a law degree. I finished that law degree. I practiced law for three years. Now, these were back in the ancient times when we had things called, wait for it, manual typewriters. Okay? Yes, they existed at one stage. We didn't have word processors. And it was, this firm I was in used to do quite a lot of wills. Now, when you've got manual typewriters and you're doing quite a lot of wills, the only way you can do it is by making sure your documents are word perfect and every word is spelt perfectly as well. So the way in which these documents would be produced is someone like me would draft the will and one of the uh, administrators or secretaries would then type up this will uh, on a manual typewriter. They would then, two of the staff would then need to sit down and read through every will word for word and make sure it was accurate. And when you got to the spelling of a word that was at all central, names and those sort of details, you would have to stop and spell the words. Uh, when you got to the numbers, you would have to read out the numbers themselves and the zeros that went with them and that sort of thing. It had to be word perfect. If a mistake was made, tear up the document and you start again. And this could be six, eight, ten pages long. Now, can you imagine the labour-intensive nature of that sort of work for some of our staff? Can you imagine how they felt when word processing got introduced? Right? <laughs> Suddenly, word processes were introduced, mistake, go back, change a few things, print it out again. It, it just totally revolutionised uh, a wills and estate practice overnight. Okay, imagine for a moment that one of the partners, 10 years after word processing and computers and everything's been introduced, one of the partners comes in and says, you know, I've had a fit of nostalgia, you know. I, I just love those old manual typewriters and so we're going to get rid of the computers and we're going to reintroduce manual typewriters just for the sake of it, all right? You would go... That is just such lunacy, you know, like it's crazy to do that, to go back to that sort of old technology. In my experience, Christians are often doing that. I don't mean going back to manual typewriters. But they experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the compassion and the liberation of having a relationship with God purely based on what Christ has done for them. And then, having experienced that, they go back to the old treadmill of having to earn their relationship with God and thinking that their relationship with God is always based on what they do, how they live, their perfection, their standards, and that if they drop away from those, God will not be pleased with them and will exclude them from relationship with himself. Can I suggest that the Bible is really clear on this point? You get into relationship with God based on his grace. You stay in relationship with God 
based on his grace. And you might then say to me, oh, yeah, but surely there are implications for the way in which we should live. And there are. Because when you're in a relationship with someone, that shapes the way in which you live. Of course it does. But it doesn't ever establish that relationship or secure that relationship. With Christ, our relationship is secured by what God has done. Now, into the future, forever. It is all grace. Grace, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. That's the way in which relationships work. See, friends, here we come to this, this wedding at Cana in Galilee. It's an occasion when God's glory is revealed through Jesus. And do you know what it signals? It signals the death of religion, the, the abolition of religion. And it points us to the death of Jesus instead and the wonderful access we have to God because of his grace. So this morning, do you know the wonderful mercy of God in Christ? Now, there may be some of us here who, who don't know that. You're in a situation going, yeah, no, I've never, you're like me, 20 years of age, university, never come together. Total misapprehension about what Christianity is all about. Uh, can I say, you want to explore this and work through and understand that relationship with God is the most central thing for your life and it's achieved because of what God has done for you. Okay, Don't, don't put it to one side, but actually explore it. But I suspect I'm talking largely to people who actually do uh, know what it means to be in relationship with God through Jesus. And if that's the case, then what I want you to remember is that we are living in the day of wedding receptions. Right? That is, I'm not saying life isn't tough or there aren't struggles or difficulties. You know, the Taylors are experiencing that right now, with that sort of distance. We know the nature of living in this world is... It's got its rough edges, for sure. But I still want to say that life and relationship with God is about wedding receptions. It is about having the most important thing in life secured. It's about the fact that Christ has come into this world and says, it is time to party because of what I've done for you in my son. It is a wonderful, wonderful blessing uh, life in this world life in relationship with God is Grange Hermitage on tap uh, that's what we're being told because that is the outpouring of the great kindness and generosity of God and we ought not ever ever forget that and we ought to relish it day by day and be secured by it for all eternity it's a wonderful gift from God let me pray for us let's pray Heavenly Father we do thank you that uh, what we encounter here is an extraordinary event, uh, quite remarkable. And yet, Father, we know it's one that points us to the very character and nature of your grace towards us in your Son. And, Father, we pray that uh, having appreciated that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness, having understood uh, the glory that you've revealed through Jesus' death and resurrection... Father, we pray that you'll preserve us from going back to rules and religion to try and establish ourselves in your sight. To know that you've done that already. 
and to know that grace teaches us how to live for you, that we never step out of it. Father, help us to explore that world, to encourage each other in it, to celebrate it day by day, and to know uh, that life has begun because we're in a relationship with you, and it will endure in all its fullness for all eternity. Uh, Father, we thank you for your generosity to us, uh, your kindness to us, your mercy to us, your compassion upon us. And Father, we pray that you help us to live as this sort of people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.